0: KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
1: From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's the treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's one of the phrases, oh, I don't know, real love and free as a bird mean to you. Well, if you've been around music in the past century, you know that they're among the treasure trove. The last song's done by a group called, I'm going to make sure I pronounce this right. Is it The Beatles? Yes, The Beatles. There was one more song found in that grouping and a terrific film made about the making of the last Beatles single, now and then i have with me the group responsible for the short film and also getting the song together i'll ask them to introduce themselves start with you jonathan
2: yes my name is jonathan clyde and i work for apple the beatles company and have done for the bars 25 odd years
3: my name is sophie hilton i work at universal music and i co-produce the film along with jonathan
2: my name is oliver murray
4: i'm a filmmaker and i was the writer and director of the short film
3: there's so
1: much to talk to you guys about here, because I was mentioning I was lucky enough, Jonathan, to have been in New Zealand the summer of 2019, where a young documentarian, he's only made, I think, one documentary before this, turned his hands to making another uh, little documentary. I think, again, his name is Peter Jackson. Not to be coy about this, but he showed me some extraordinary stuff. Let me ask you what, finding this material for the first time. I mean, This goes back to that session, I guess, that gave us Real Love and, and Free as a Bird, roughly the same time, right?
2: Yes. Um, in 1994, Yoko had given Paul and George and Ringo some demos. And on those demos were Real Love, Free as a Bird, Now and Then, the track in question we're talking about now, and another track, Grow Old with Me, which I think ended up on a Lennon album produced by George Martin. And Free as a Bird and Real Love, they worked on with Jeff Lynn who's known as, you know, for the, the Electric Light or Orchestra.
1: also one of the Traveling Wilburys. And right, also one show, of George. the Traveling
2: Wilburys. So there was a connection there. And they made Free as Bird Real Love, but they struggled with Now and Then because the demo had John's voice, piano, and the sound of a television in the background, which is had a sort of buzzing sound. And they didn't have the technology then to do the separation, to make his voice sound good. I think George was sort of felt they'd done enough. They'd got free as a bird. They got real love. And maybe they should just put this one away. It wasn't, it just wasn't going anywhere. So that's what happened. But the technology, Peter Jackson's technology that unlocked so much of Get Back or the, the actual dialogue and audio from Get Back. Using that technology, Paul sent the cassette, the demo to Peter, and then he unlocked the vocal So you've got a clear John voice, and you could lose the piano, and Paul replayed the piano, covered the piano himself, replayed exactly the chords that John was playing, and um, you had a clear vocal. This is why we're sitting here. I think without that technology, Paul probably wouldn't have ever finished that track. It's
1: incredible, too, because Oliver in the film, I mean, there's one point where... um... George goes, well, you know, Jeff's got this technology. Well, that's another kettle of fish. And Paul says, another can of worms. So Ringo goes, yes, is it another year of our lives? <laughs> uh, and you can, even in that exchange, which A, sounds like something from A Hard Day's Night, mm. but B, also, you can hear the exhaustion <laughs> in that, can't you?
4: I think that also speaks to the legacy of the Beatles. You know, that this isn't something that they just do on a whim. Um, and the democracy of it as well, I find that particularly really interesting for that. But... Yeah, I think they just knew the road ahead was not going to be a particularly easy one, uh, and it clearly wasn't. Sort of flying off the tape, was it? So they um, they kind of know that maybe maybe that one's not gonna it's not gonna fly this time around.
1: It's fascinating too, just because. And I want to get you in, on this, Sophie, too, because this we're aware, and Jonathan, you can weigh in on this too, because I even talked with this about when I set with peter jackson for years back that they used the studio as an instrument they were truly modern recording artists and what we think of recording artists now people think about the, the studio and its technology at the time as something they could use as another member of the band or as an instrument in a way that people of that era generally did not and that we can hear that in the way that they approach this can't we
3: Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think also there's a line from Sean in the documentary where he says that his father was never afraid to experiment with technology. And uh, he would be very proud of what's happened here and what has been, to Jonathan's point, been unlocked with Peter's technology. And that is very purely and simply separating John's voice and being able to therefore build in another Beatles track from that. So yeah, I think um, they're not afraid of it and they never have been. And that was what That's why we're here now. We wouldn't be here otherwise.
2: But they did revolutionize recording in combination with George Martin. And they pushed each other. They pushed George Martin and he responded. He was fascinated by technology and he'd worked a lot with comedy artists who wanted sound effects. And they did revolutionize recording and they gave permission or license suddenly for all sorts of other musicians to go, God, well, the Beatles can do that. Why can't we do this? And so it was, it was huge and that technology thing has always been there. And I find it fascinating hearing George talking about computers. And we're talking about 1995 and he knew this, you know, the, what you could do with computers was gonna be extraordinary. But also I think too, and I want
1: you all to sort of step in and, and you can start Oliver, is that unlike Brian Wilson with whom they were competing here in the United States, they were using the studio as a group rather than sort of creating a one picture in their head. So there was this sense of them being, complimenting each other and pushing each other forward. And as you mentioned, Jonathan, with, with George Martin being a part of that conglomeration too, through his work at BBC and using that studio, they all were interested in that place in the way that I think made them singular for the time, didn't it?
4: Absolutely. I suppose it sort of all goes back to the, they played live until it didn't interest them anymore. So they just collectively decided that was their, that was their sandpit. That was going to be their creative playhouse. Um, and they're actually they're all so different as individuals. And it was just sort of that alchemy between them that could be marshaled together in the studio to make those great records. I was so struck looking at the archives, just how great. All those albums are in actually quite a small space of time. When you think about the impact and the legacy of the Beatles, the actual active work in the studio, it's just kill a record every once a year. They just make it look easy, you know.
1: I think you're playing off of Get Back and that you we were just talking before we got started. You introduced this to almost everybody off camera. Yeah. There's an aural cue that we hear, and I love that. With George, it's the sound of nature and birds. And when Sean Lennon is introduced, we it's almost like his father's playing him into this. Yeah. And we sort of hear, like almost a bit of reverb as Paul starts to speak and then the tension is ratcheted up when Ringo steps in. It's almost like he's coming in to provide the backbeat. Talk about introducing them through sound as well as through picture in the the short about the making of the the single. I don't know
4: if I can do a better job than the one you just did there. (laughs) The the, (laughs) the, um, uh, When you don't see faces, if you get it wrong and you don't let the audience connect with that voice, then you you never get up and running and, and you can never really tell your story properly, but because we had such amazing archive, that's where I hope the audience are. It's almost like I could use archive as a time machine. So we go back and it was amazing to have the yellow submarine
3: as that's the time traveling yes, device yes. that was such
4: a gift. So once that was in the mix and we were going back and forth in time and the date scroll to start, for instance, to see Ringo now, it would just jump you out of the world. So we try and create a world with the archive and the specificity of the the first-hand accounts from the small group of people. That was sort of, our, I think, our first conversation was we really don't want, you know, third-party interviews and people sort of, you know, there was never going to be any commentators on this or, or a narrator. Um, it's just giving the guys the floor to tell their own story and Jonathan did the interviews with them and the interviews, just the unedited interviews that came back were amazing in themselves, you know.
1: It's the treatment we're talking with the team responsible for the short film, Now and Then, The Beatles' last single, so we're told this year, it's director and writer Alvin Murray, the producer of the short, Sophie Hilton and Jonathan Clyde of Apple Corps. As we're talking about this, Jonathan, one of the things I thought about with this too is just that it does come at the, the perfect time for this not only coming after Get Back, but also just, I think, the way that we've now deal with this kind of phenomenon, that we want a kind of information that doesn't feel so curated, but told by the artists themselves. And that we get all these voices that are all different points of view, but all telling a similar narrative. is fascinating. I wonder if that was part of the fun of doing the interviews for you.
2: I think it was. And I think the Get Back project surprised us because we always knew that beatle fans and anyone of a certain age would be fascinated by seeing the beatles working in the studio together and figuring stuff out difficult stuff too at a time when they were starting to fragment but we hadn't counted on how it virally spread to 20s and 30 year olds who were fascinated by it and it's that thing of it was like a reality show but set in 1969 and the Beatles in the Big Brother house. And I, I was amazed. I was told by my kids are in their 30s. All my friends are watching it. They're all obsessed by it. That was liberal That was extraordinary. We never thought that would happen. And then for now and then... but you didn't think that would happen? Not that. Not not to that age group. Okay, so every
1: five years, there's another sort of compilation of Beatles material that sells out across demographics of every stripe. And you were surprised?
2: Well, we were surprised at the get back, that, you know, supposedly the attention span of young people is short. (laughs) So how the hell were they going to cope with seven and a half hours? (laughs) Of people sitting around day after day trying to figure out what they were gonna do. But that was what was surprising. That was what was surprising. And but now and then coming now, I also think without being too trite, you know, the world's in a dreadful state at the moment, let's face it. I mean global warming, the Middle East, what's going on in Ukraine and everything else. And the Beatles here the Beatles arrive with a the joy and hope that their music translates into and i think that is it's an extraordinary moment and i think it's a relief it's respite from all this
1: guys it's so funny what you're saying that. and i'll turn to you Sophie. it feels like this time is not that different from the time that they were making these records you know i mean uh with that period of get back where the world was in free fall and and we couldn't tell there were one, there's one extreme pitted against another and we, we couldn't really see anything except from moment to moment but what we have now with the with get back which i think really abets the appetite for now and then, is seeing how they worked together. And I was wondering if that was something that you thought was sort of make makes this song kind of the cherry atop the Sunday.
3: Well, I think it, it potentially goes back to Ollie's point, you know, that they all, they worked so well together, but they were all their di- own different characters. And I think that, yeah, we've managed to be as lucky as we are to work on something that has been titled the last Beatles song, the story of that and how that came about to the extent that it's it's since you know the early 70s to now. Yet each one of the Beatles has been just as important and prevalent and influential in this, this moment happening in 2023 as if they were all still around. So I think that that was incredibly important to all of us to make sure that it felt like everybody was on the level pegging. There was equal standing across all the different estates and the different Beatles and so on. And I would I would hope that that comes across in the piece and how important every person was to making this actually happen.
1: It's funny because as you were saying that, I was thinking, and I'll turn to you for this, Oliver, you found a way to introduce them not only off stage or off camera, yeah. but as soon as we hear them, we know who they are because of the points of view. Yeah, come across in the first soundbite you use. Mm. I want to ask you about that because I think you're really surgical in the way that you do it. Mm.
4: It does have to be surgical because also with it being a short film short films are really difficult usually you try and make short films and then move away from them because they are so hard and you know you can trip up and you can sort of lose momentum and never really get going again and then it becomes this sort of, I mean I was saying to Sophie earlier that I think if we'd said oh it's going to be a a 12 minute short film. That's sort of like suicide really for the, you know, for how short, short stuff is that lives on the internet especially. So it was quite surgical and I knew that we weren't gonna get a huge amount of time with the guys. So when Jonathan and I were talking about the questions, that was the first, it always starts on the page. So just had to make sure that it was properly written and then sort of reverse engineer that into questions. And the guys, I mean, Paul and Ringo especially, they're such expert storytellers. So much of the interview was great. It was just a question of balancing the point of view, but then also just sort of passing the torch of the story through each individual to the end. And there's a sort of big, soaring, emotional conclusion of the tape's journey, which is when we first hear the isolated vocal of John. That, that was on my wall behind the computer. That was my sort of the apex of the story when it was written down that that's where we've got to get to that's the emotional place we need to get people to and then keep them there for the last bit
1: we'll take a break we'll talk about making a procedural out of an emotional moment and song and iconic moment in popular culture a short film about the last song by the beatles now and then i'm here talking with his team it's a treatment there's more to come stay with us I still can't believe we're talking about The Beatles, uh, with the team behind the making of the, the, the song now and then, and the short film about it. I'll ask him to reintroduce themselves, starting with you, Oliver. My name's Oliver Murray. I'm the
4: writer and director of the short film.
3: I'm Sophie Hilton. I'm co-producer from Universal Music.
2: I'm Jonathan Clyde from Apple Core, The Beatles Company, and I produced the film along with Sophie.
1: This is fascinating to me. I'll start back with you again, Jonathan, just because what Oliver was talking about before the break Part of the fun of this is that by now, these guys know what they sound like and they know what they represent as soon as they open the, their mouths. So <laughs> finding a question to ask that represents their point of view, was that hard for you to do? Because it's... My palms is when you're just thinking about what
2: I want to ask Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr about this. Well, I, I had a whole load of questions and... Um, but you have to start somewhere. You, you know, do you have do, to start you somewhere. The, the, the the start. Start, you start by, he wants to know what's this for what are you going to do with this? What are you looking for from me? And I told him. What and, did you say? Uh, well, I said we want, wanted to make a short film, or well, then it was even an EP, EPK to use that oh, geez. Uh, initially. And uh, he said, okay. But he, he once he knows what you're looking for, he's the master of delivery. And actually, I asked one question, and about... Four minutes later, he stopped and uh, he went through. He told me the whole story, and I'd say, "All right, Paul, can we just wheel back, please, <laughs> back to the beginning, and let's take it through bit by bit, piece by piece?" So he he's he's a brilliant interviewee, but I should say, it literally at that point, I think in Universal's minds they needed something to promote this single with, uh, in in blunt terms, and in my mind, I was thinking. Well, this is such an extraordinary story that it's got to be properly told and also what's going to happen when this comes out unless Paul and Ringo have actually told this story themselves, otherwise they're going to get inundated to do interviews. But what the simple thing is to make this film, put it out there and then everybody's got the story and they don't have to be doing countless interviews, which they don't really want to do. And so, at the start, yes, the questions, I then wheeled back and went through all the questions that, that Ollie and I had worked out. And uh, he was, he's a fantastic person to interview. Ringo is great to interview, but he, he doesn't tend to answer the questions you ask him. Um, <laughs> uh, but he gives you something else, which you... Always his interviews, and they tend to be, tends to be shorter and sharper answers. He doesn't tend to have a conversation... But out of it, you get some great sound bites. And so he his contribution was, was fantastic. Sean was incredibly thoughtful and reflective. And, and he said, you don't want me in this film. Surely I don't want to be, I feel odd being in this film. It's about the Beatles. I wasn't in the Beatles. I said, yeah, but you are the person who can set the context for where John was at in the 70s. Okay, you were little, you were a toddler most of the time, but you've got a sense of what life was like in the Dakota building in, in the late 70s. So he agreed to do it, and he did it beautifully. I thought it was very wistful, and I loved all the footage, the home movie footage of, of, of John at home, obviously being a, a proper hands-on dad, but also still writing songs and, and not being public about it.
1: I can't look at that film without thinking about it, and, and it's composed for me of iconic moments. I mean, seeing Paul play the bass in front of the camera I don't know what it did for you but <laughs> I could feel that I hate to fall in cliche but I could sort of feel my hair standing up on the, the backs of my hands it was pretty extraordinary to see and you've populated the film with those kinds of moments
4: mm. oh it's great to be there I'll tell you that <laughs> yeah um to uh, to get invited to Dan and we we did a few pickups for Peter Jackson's music video as well so it was kind of nice to work with him and just see how how curious he is to keep working you know he d- he loves it the music he really loves it and it's uh, it's so great to see and it just makes you want to do the absolute very best for whatever project he's
1: working on because no one works harder than Paul McCartney and you think because we've grown up with the beatles and seen them around you think well some part of us is inured to this but to see that moment where he's just there in a studio by himself, the left-handed bass. Because you can forget that if you're not if you haven't seen it for a while since Get Back. I mean, talk about that for you too. So if you're just seeing Ringo, just actually do what he does to the to the drumsticks, holding them up like that before he starts to hit. I mean, that's like he's still like a 15 year old. Can't wait to get started with the drums, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and and that that is so lovely to see. It's so amazing to see them in their true organic environments doing what they do and doing what they do best and still, to your point, passionately, you know. And I think that's one of the things that for us has resonated hugely across, you know, if you crudely, if you look at the comments on the short film on YouTube or if you look at the comments on Peter Jackson's video on YouTube, the age range, the demographics are vast. It's from 19-year-olds up to 80-year-olds and the comments are so interesting about people are feeling the true element of what both the film and the video are, which is that they they feel very real and everybody's connecting to them emotionally. And that was the most important thing for us, I think, like what Ollie captured and how he edited it and everything. and what Jonathan captured with the with the interviews is that it feels like all of this comes from the heart and genuinely it does. It comes from Paul, it comes from Ringo, it comes from Sean, it comes from Olivia. And if it didn't have that heart to it, I don't think we would be getting the reactions that we're getting globally across all the reactions that we're seeing from, you know, like I say, on YouTube, but also people like Disney+, Plus, Apple TV, like all these different HBO, PBS, everybody coming on board simultaneously, 27 broadcasters in 24 countries coming on board simultaneously to show this short film because of what it means culturally and the fact that it resonates so much with so many people emotionally, and it wouldn't do that if it wasn't real in itself.
1: It's a reality show, certainly. But it's also a show about how art is made by a committee. We can even feel that the, the, the strains in this short film that, to me, sent me hurtling back to, and I rewatched watched after I watched it as I went back to Get Back just because I wanted to do that.
2: Very much so, and actually watching that footage from 95 when there's George... Paul and Ringo and Jeff Lynne in, in the studio, if you look at the rushes, it's very similar to Get Back. I mean, they, it's the same way they used to work. They'd work very hard, they'd work on the songs, and then they'd get, they they needed to sort of take a break, so they'd have, they'd make tea, they'd sit around, they'd make each other laugh, and then they'd go and start playing old standards for a bit, just to sort of change the tone, and then, all right, well, I suppose we better get back to what we're supposed to be doing and start you know, working on whatever track it was. And then the Get Back was fascinating because the Beatles were these sort of rock gods. And here they were just four guys trying to figure stuff out at a time when they were starting to fragment and different things were coming important in their lives. They were outgrowing the Beatles in in their own way, but desperately wanting to keep them together. And that awareness of why of where well, they were saying to each other, so is it now then, is this it? Are we going to break up now or should we, you know... And they would kind of kept going and, and George walking out was actually probably the best thing that happened because it snapped them out of there and- It gives them the coalescer. Absolutely. And this is the messiness of work, you know, it's messy uh, working to get you know, creative work and people do walk out and sometimes they don't come back for a while, but it can have a, it can be, you know, propel things forward. You know, what's
1: fascinating about it, and I want to get you all to comment on this before we go, is that each of them at some point does an approximation of John's voice. (laughs) And sort of hear Ringo sort of do it in this droll way, and hear Paul doing this really gee whiz way. Of course i do it! I mean, just hearing that, you really feel like they all have such specific memories of him that it doesn't hurt you to not have seen Get Back, just to hear them talk about him. And I want to talk to you guys about finding those pieces of, of them talking about John and doing his voice, because you were very specific about that, weren't you?
4: Yes, it's the story of, of the music, but any good music documentary isn't actually about music, is it, at the end of the day? so So for me, I thought, right, well, really, we're making a story about friendship and the chance for these friends to make one more piece of music so that's what i was looking for you know the subtext in everything that was going on is it's a very personal thing for paul and ringo to have that experience and you know if, if nothing else i think probably you know it's a, it's a great success just for paul to be able to have worked with his friends again and for ringo to work with his friends again so once i kind of locked into that that was another so parameter to push the story through.
3: Actually, we were talking earlier about the transcripts themselves and um, listening to. We've had to listen to them multiple times, obviously. And um, Sean's and Paul's and Ringo's, in particular, there is so much that obviously we didn't use in the twelve minutes. But the, you know, Paul's I would say is probably seven pages long, and and Sean's is probably longer, and so on, and. Some of the quotes and some of the comments, as a lifelong Beatles fan, myself, personally, listening to those and listening to Jonathan interviewing Paul or Sean or Ringo, some of the things that we didn't use in there, but where they talk about John or talk about things they used to get up to, honestly, it brings tears to your eyes. It's so emotional and so moving. And and I think, you know, there's so much beauty in how they felt about John and how they still feel about John. And I think what this, this track and the film and the video mean to them personally.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that moment in the film where uh, Ringo says, uh, hey, John, do you want to put the kettle on? Uh, and it's like he's there. He's stepped out of the room to make a cup of tea. And that's how I think they related to work. Here there's this voice. His, his physical presence isn't there, but he's there. He's there.
1: We feel that like from all of them, even Sean talking about wanting to make something that would please them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So all the fractiousness. This is a conversation I had with Peter when he was showing me that stuff in New Zealand. All he said, you realize it was how much of that was invention or just a convenient way to report because they broke up. But you could feel the affection in watching all that raw footage before it got, as you know, from before it got cut in something got into. Get back. We can still feel all the affection here, can't we?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. That bond. And then the other thing that's important about the release of this record is: this is not some cynical move where we've had this gem sitting in the archive for years. Ha <laughs> ha! When are we going to launch it on the public? Now is the time. No, this has happened organically, and it's taken fifty years to uh, to come about. And that there's something magical about that. Well, we're not talking about
1: calculation, but rather the making of Now and Then with the team responsible for making this terrific film and project. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank, thank you for
3: having us. It's all
2: because of you.
1: And last single by The Beatles, Now and Then is setting new sales and digital download records is soon expected to be the most downloaded single of the 21st century. The filmmaking team, Jonathan Clyde, Sophie Hilton, and writer-director Oliver Murray, responsible for the making of the short Now and Then, The Last Beatles Song, offered their insights on making a film about the Fab Four's process. What's the most watched comedy series on Prime Video? If you said Upload, you're right. Its creator, Greg Daniels, has been responsible for some other highly-watched sitcoms. He's next. Stories about new heights reached by technology and entertainment. Hear them at the archive at kcrwcom treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the Treatment.
0: KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, seen on the screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Scene on the screen is available now, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars.
1: It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. What do you say about the show Upload to describe it so that you give a sense of it without giving too much away, besides saying it's the biggest half hour show on Prime Video. How about this? It's the perfect cross between paranoid thriller and screwball comedy. Its creator, Greg Daniels is here to talk about it. Greg, first of all, thanks so much for doing this. And it is that, isn't it?
5: It's a mix of a lot of genres. I, I was trying to think in this world where there's so many shows, what I would want to watch as a viewer. And I tried to Kind of do like what Bollywood does when they throw in (laughs) absolutely everything into one movie, you know? And it's like, if this is the only movie you ever get to watch, at least you'll have every type of enjoyment.
1: But it has so many things I think of as being sort of Greg Daniels touchstones, which is there's so much ego involved. I mean, there are always a couple of characters who are incredibly vain in your work. And we can go back to Michael in The Office or certainly we can say Ron and Parks and Rec and, and so many people in Parks and Recreation. And I think we could say Mark and Space Force. And here it's kind of a your lead character, one of your lead characters, Nathan, but also his girlfriend, are incredibly vain. I wanted to talk to you about having that that thread that runs through so much of your work.
5: I would say the kind of work that I do is the genre of character comedy where the um the jokes are coming from the personalities of the the characters involved. And so you're always looking for some strong character that has some flaws in them. And uh, vanity is a really easy way to lampoon somebody. With Nathan on Upload, the theme of the show had this idea of second chances in the sense that he died much earlier than he thought he was going to. But then he's kind of reanimated in this virtual world. And he has a second chance to do a better job and be a more, uh, a person of greater depth. So that's sort of part of the the theme.
1: We should say too, that it's a show set in the not too distant future and where heaven is kind of a place for rich people, or I should say, a metaverse for rich people. And on the eve of his apparent demise, Nathan is uploaded into a virtual heaven. And I guess I find myself thinking, too, as I was watching, of Defending Your Life, the Albert Brooks comedy about heaven and about the idea of being able to have the garden of earthly delights open to you, but not being able to enjoy it in the way you want. I mean, the,
5: the initial idea that I had for this was very long time ago, and it was when I was actually a sketch writer at Saturday Night Live, and I, I was just kind of wandering around trying to think of sketch ideas, and um, I was thinking, well, you know, everybody's digitizing their music libraries. If you could digitize your entire memories, you could be uploaded into like a virtual game, you know, like a video game. And... What would the implication of that be well it would mean that human beings could create an afterlife however they wanted to and so it is sort of a practical sci-fi afterlife not as not like a supernatural one like defending your life but you know the downside of human beings creating something is that it's going to have all the flaws of human society all the greed and extreme capitalism that the tech companies would bring to such a thing And so it's not gonna be that great. And I always thought, well, that's a really cool idea because it can say a lot about unfairness. So that's what we pursue on the show a lot.
1: But there is though the sense of people not being able to have, no matter whether it's the future or the present in your work, not being able to get exactly what it is they want. That's both comic and I think sort of slightly melodramatic that I really respond to in your work.
5: Oh, thank you. Well, I like poignancy. You know, I, I like the sort of poignancy of of things that aren't as you hope that they are. And I, and I think from a satiric point of view, so much of technology now is pitched as only the good stuff because they're trying to you know make money. So <laughs> if something new will come in, you know, like Uber or whatever, and it'll be like, oh, Uber's fantastic. You know, then you're like, well, yeah, <laughs> but it's also like. There's all these people who are being abused in the backs of Ubers. And Facebook is a great example where I think everybody just was like, uh, cool, I can keep up with friends of mine from high school. And then later it's like, oh, yeah, also, by the way, we're destroying democracy. Sorry about that. That's one of the (laughs) side effects that you have to live with.
1: I think what's what's so fun about this show too is that and a lot of your work I I said screwball comedy because there is a farcical speed to it, especially in this show where there's so much packed into each episode. It's almost like you're trying to make up for the fact that you don't get to do 20 shows, so you gotta cram in as much stuff as you can into seven or eight.
5: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'm so used to, you know, much longer series and you get in with the writers and you come up with all these ideas and you're kind of like I don't want to have to pick so I you know we try to pack as much as we possibly can in and then there's a ton of post on the show that's like you know after we shoot I settle in with the editors for like 8 months so there's plenty of time to really squeeze it and and shrink shrink it down so that the pace is very very fast and furious
1: well there's so much great visual humor in this but also I feel like there is something that you took from the first a season of Space, Witch, which, which, by the way, I really admired. You don't often see comedy look like that, and and this is a show that feels to me as as sort of filmic uh, as anything else. I mean, there are so many great visual moments, like this season when Nathan is uh, on the, this virtual landscape and he's making sort of lawn angels, but it's all coming up in cubes. And um, yeah,
5: yeah, it's like Minecraft world. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly um, that. And thank you. Well, we we have the same director Photography, photography, uh, Simon Chapman on Space Force and uh, Upload. A lot of that is, you know, being driven by the streamers in a way. It's like if you're going to do only eight episodes and it's going to drop all around the world on the same day as it does on Amazon or Netflix, there is this feeling of like you you better up the game and have everything be as A-plus as you can, whether it's the photography or the set, you know, the production design or everything that you're trying to hit it out of the park and that and kind of that's one of the reasons why i was so excited to do uh this show was uh you know i'd done a lot of television and i love doing mockumentaries they're really good for comedy they're very casual and and uh and everything but as i got into directing more i just wanted to to push it a little bit and try and you know up the game
1: what i liked so much about Space
5: Force, now, I don't mean to dwell on this, but so, I'm I'm so happy that you liked it. I mean, I really liked it too. I, I, I'm glad that you're a fan. Thanks. Thanks for that. Keep going.
1: And I know it changed in the second season, but I it actually really took its time, which I thought was kinda of interesting in the show that was so compact and full of ideas. But also that there is this all these vistas that we got to see were places that people lived in. That felt to me unique to comedy. Especially the kind of stuff that we're used to seeing you do. Uh, again, we had so many
5: resources on the first season of space force they just sort of opened the checkbook and we you know we actually had um a live orchestra we wow um, yeah it was it was amazing you know we had uh Carter Burwell as the as the uh composer,
1: composer yes
5: and it was limited only by our imagination really and you know obviously the cast was amazing and we had this gorgeous set that was just enormous and uh so the, the, it was really like uh a lot of resources. And then, you know, of course, paradoxically, everybody looked at it and was like, it's, it's too, too fancy. Let's root for it to fail, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it was certainly fun to make.
1: I'm still excited about talking to the creator of Space Force, but nobody wants to hear that. So instead, I'll talk to the creator of Upload, which is currently on Prime Video in its third season. He's Greg Daniels. You can also hear this show at kcow.com slash thetreatment. Because there's so many plot elements in motion, it does give that sense of things happening faster than the characters can sort of figure them out, which sort of, in narrative terms, makes it like thematically close to what the show is about, but there's technology being faster than they can master.
5: The mystery is like an element in the series, right? And in the first couple of seasons, the characters were really not aware of what was happening. Like they realized that Nathan had been murdered and didn't die in a in a self-driving car crash as, as he first thought. And they tried to put together what the clues were to, to figure it out. He's in season three, I think they know what the plot is or they know who's behind it. I mean, you as a film scholar will probably... Decide whether or not we you see any evidence of this, but there were these sort of uh, political thrillers of the seventies, like oh, Alan Parallax
1: View yeah, absolutely.
5: Yes, Parallax View and and like, like Coma. <laughs> yeah, so I was trying to put some of that energy into this season, and uh, I feel like you're picking up on it when you're when you're talking about that.
1: There's just also this aspect, too, of people not being who we think they are. My favorite example of this, of course, is Ivan, who seems to get
5: <laughs> no yes, small amount of Ivan's
1: pleasure wonderful. in being a triple agent. But also there's even, <laughs> in this this third season, there's a cop who seems to have been one person and turns out to be somebody else. And even we even think he's kind of inept at certain points, and for things to sort of come to a, a head the way they did with him, or torso, I guess we can say, uh, <laughs> the, that aspect of people... You're giving us more and more information about these characters too, which connects me to the films of Alan Pakula and, and all these again these paranoid thrillers that come to mind for me.
5: I think that just as a just plain as a storytelling feature, surprise is so great. You know, it's like it's obviously very important for comedy, but I just think in any genre, it's wonderful to be surprised by what happens. And you know, when somebody isn't who you you think they are, but at least if it all adds up, it's not just a random reversal of some kind to me i find those really fun and then there's an aspect of the show because there's two worlds there's one virtual and one real and the people in the real world have to put on you know those vr goggles and stuff to participate in the virtual world and you're not always sure who's wearing the goggles so There's a couple of times in the season also where people are walking around in the virtual world and they're not aware of who they're interacting with. They think they're interacting with somebody that they trust and it's completely somebody else.
1: Again, so much of what you've done in these shows, Parks and Rec, in the past, Space Force, I mentioned it again, but also The Office is about how presentational people are, which appends and speaks to ego and how people want to be seen versus the way they really are. In the real world, uh, and in some of these past shows, there's always been this disconnect between what people want folks to see, like in the case of Tom Haverford, and who they really are. And so in this show, for identity to be such a fungible thing, I think it's fascinating. And I think that so many people are responding to this must make you really happy about being able to play with it in such a big way and have people dig it.
5: When you're mentioning the Parks and Rec and the mockumentaries, one thing that I definitely felt was great about The mockumentary is, okay, so you have the characters and you have all their relationships like a normal show. And then you had this added conceptual layer that it's not a normal show. It's actually being filmed as a documentary and the cameras are in the room. And when when you add that layer to things, then you always have that to go to for comedy. So somebody can be saying what they're saying to the person next to them in the scene, but then they can also suddenly become aware that, you know a third person is listening in on this or it might be seen by their grandparents or whatever and that causes them to think you know and i think that that same kind of extra layer in the sci-fi show is just a place you can go to to make things more complicated and more interesting and and go to for comedy is that like people are having this this scene together but one of them's actually sitting in their living room wearing vr goggles and somebody's knocking on the door to deliver a pizza and that's just like a, a weird layer that isn't in a normal show.
1: This show felt to me like the response to those mockumentary shows, where uh, in those shows we didn't get to see what was going on behind the scenes. And all the angels, which is to say the employees who can enter the virtual world as, as avatars, are kind of like the filmmakers that we didn't get to see in, in those shows that were mockumentary shows. That's a
5: very interesting comment. Keep going. I want to hear the end.
1: Yeah. No, because I just thought this to me felt like a, a kind of a a response to making shows where you don't get to see the folks who are actually filming it or the folks who are in some ways manipulating reality and being able to combine both of those worlds. So you can also comment on the people who are observing and kind of de facto editing what's going on in these virtual worlds. That to me felt yeah, like Yeah, well, was- I,
5: I love that observation. I think that's super cool. I thought at first, well, this has got to be the opposite of The Office. Like I'm going in a completely different direction because, you know, it's science fiction and, uh, you know, it's so filmic and everything. And then I realized like, okay, all the customer service people are working at Horizon, this sort of oppressive tech building, and they have to kind of suck up to all the up the dead rich people that they're servicing in a similar way that all all of the downtrodden employees of Dunder Mifflin are having to to humor Michael in in his self image, you know, as, as like a funny person or whatever. Like, I was like, oh, I guess I'm not that far away from that show. But your comment is so interesting that, yeah, they do. They control and manipulate and present reality to the people that are in the virtual world. And they see behind the scenes and can speed it up or do anything
1: they want to it, really so many of these these actors that you've cast are people who are new to television. Uh, Maybe if you've been around, we've seen them do a stage or whatever or an alternative comedy, but seeing them being given so much to do and responding so well to it. I mean, this this show is cast well from top to bottom, and that includes who I think presumably is your son playing my favorite and most tragically predictive of the world we're in character.
5: I kind of love the process of casting bringing people in and having them read the the part and then working with them and giving them like improv prompts and seeing how they adapt and everything. It's like, you know, when you're directing, you get to do that with the actors. And when you're when you're casting, it's like you've been through this two years of writing and pre-production and you're finally getting a chance to see actors who are like the, the most fun people in the business. And you, you know, so you're always like, oh, I, I gotta start directing them. I, I just find that process like so fun and then to find this crew of really interesting human beings and then learn like what their strengths are and start adapting the characters so that they can take advantage of you know what the humans bring to it it makes it you know very collaborative and and surprising uh you know because I I can I can sort of dream what I think the characters are in the beginning, but then when they are finally embodied by the cast, it's like completely different and I got to start over and it's it keeps it really fresh.
1: Um, well, thank you so much. My guest is Greg Daniels. He's the creator of, among many shows, the terrific new show on Prime Video, Upload.
5: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. It was really fun. The
1: first paranoid thriller sitcom it's upload from Prime Video. And that was its creator, Greg Daniels. With the treat, its first time director and actor, Randall Park, with a musical selection that tells you a lot about him. And if you're down with it, about you as well. Previous adventures in Vibing. There at KCRW.com slash the treat. The new one is next. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell, and this is The Treat. You may know him as an actor, but I think of Randall Park as a director, now and forever after his first film, Behind the Camera, Shortcomings. Here's a telling expression of musical taste for someone who likes his beats from The Bell Tower. Let him explain. My name is Randall
6: Park, and this is The Treat. I'm glad you all made it to my show. Hope you enjoy it. By the way, my treat is an album called The Unseen by Quasimodo. Uh, 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 Came out uh, on a label called Stone's Throw, the year 2000. It is one of my all-time favorite albums. It's definitely one that I've listened to from beginning to end in one sitting more than any other album it's uh very weird very psychedelic but it's just such a great piece of work
3: like some your mind state split like the voices of the new breed up the
6: mainstream plus it's kind of a collaboration album between one of my all-time favorite producers a producer named Madlib, and uh, a character called Lord Quaz, who essentially is uh, is also Madlib. So it's a collaboration album made by just one person, who, from what I've read, was apparently on shrooms while while making this album. And if you listen to it, you might get that feeling, uh, al- along with so many other feelings.
5: Come on, feet. Cruise
2: for me. Trouble <laughs> ain't no, no place feet. to be.
5: Come on, feet. Do your thing. Oh, All nah. you
6: Come
2: on, on, legs. Come on, on legs. Come on, run.
6: For this character of Lord Quaz, what Madlib does, from what I've read, he records his, his raps on, in a slowed down process and then speeds it back up to match the beat leaving this kind of very weird, high-pitched voice uh, of this character, Lord Quaz. And, and he himself raps along with this very high-pitched character. It gives the album kind of this comical feel, but it's also extremely dark and unsettling. What put you on the block anyway? A kid, an old man, probably all three. Here's Wouldn't be no news to me. Cause ain't nothing under a rock that I ain't seen. That's what has me sitting throughout the album from beginning to end. But also the music is it's it's kind of this hodgepodge of of samples and and loops and spoken word.
4: I I
6: wouldn't say it's a, a personal work. At least from an outsider perspective, but it's definitely a very internal work. It's conscious and it's very unconscious. It's it's this delving into this, the whole id ego thing. These these dark, sad, ugly parts of uh him as an artist and uh and i just love that
4: that's where in a funny way if you follow me walk if people
6: don't like it i can understand that and i could still be i could still be friends with people who don't like it but if people like it i will have an automatic connection to like I, I will feel an automatic connection to because uh it is just one of those weird very specific oddities that for some reason, maybe I should speak to my therapist about it, but for some reason it just spoke to me so deeply. (laughs) And uh, I think people would be surprised that like the dad from Fresh Off the Boat loves this, this album.
1: Director, and yes, actor, Randall Park, on The Unseen by Quasimoto. Or is it Mad Lib? The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. All the help we needed, we got from Anna Bus, Laura Kandarajan, and P.J. Shahamad. To better days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment.
2: krs one secret hip-hop intelligence, Diamond D, and the whole DITC.